this morning that we're scared the storm was coming. And I think that may be why we're down a little bit. But I'm glad you folks are here. This is the brave bunch today, right? Not afraid of a little bit of water and whatever may come uh, go along with it. But I seriously, I am glad that you've come out to this morning. Do pray for those that are ill, those that can't be here for one reason or another. And pray that the Lord would speak to those of us that are here. Amen. That's what it's all about. I want to talk to you about a couple of things before we get into the message this morning. The first one is we want to welcome on board all of our new trustees. A church business meeting was last Sunday night, and the church elected as a whole three new trustees for those that are going off the board uh, this this year. So we have Brother Isidro Rodriguez, uh, Brother uh, Ruben Notorio, and Brother Troy Emmett. All three of them coming on board with the trustees, and you gentlemen are to be with us next Saturday morning at eight o'clock. Excuse me, at nine o'clock for our first trustees meeting. I scared Richard there for a minute when I said eight o'clock. Uh, you know, that's a that, when you get to a certain age, that kind of becomes a scary concept. But anyway, we'll we'll leave that right there where it is. But we do welcome these guys and appreciate their willingness to serve. And we'll talk to you a little bit more, folks, about what all these uh, these men that are serving with us on the trustee board do. Uh, but be praying for them, if you would, please. Also, I want to remind the church that next Saturday morning, after the trustees' meeting, so it'll be somewhere around 1030, probably. Uh, maybe we can get done a little faster than that, but we're going to be having an all-church work day, try to get things spruced up around here a little bit, and prepared for Easter Sunday that's coming up just in a couple of weeks. And so anybody that can, please come out and participate with us uh, on that day, and we'll try to get a bunch of things done here at the facility uh, in, for the glory of the Lord. Amen. It's not about us. It's about him. And so we invite you to come and participate with that if you would. And then obviously our our Christmas or Easter. Easter, (laughs) our Resurrection Sunday Cantata is coming up very, very soon. Uh, Two weeks from now, uh, on Saturday evening, we're going to have a presentation at 7 o'clock in the evening. And then on Sunday evening, in lieu of our regular scheduled Sunday evening service at 6 p.m. on Sunday uh, that is Resurrection Sunday. We will be having our uh, cantata, and so we want to ask everybody to be praying about that, be talking to your friends and neighbors about it. Hopefully we'll get a, a flyer uh, ready here within, uh, like today, or something like that, or maybe by next week anyways, that you can get out and, and uh, invite folks to come to that. And we're going to be starting right after our, East, uh, right after our Resurrection Day celebration, uh, the Sunday following that. We're going to be starting a new class over in the Family Life Center for the this is kind of to take the place of the class that was kind of disbanded when Brother, uh, Brother and Mrs. Bold went to uh, help with the church plant. And we're praying, of course, for them and for the work that's going on there in Dickinson. And we keep in praying, if you would, for uh, Brother Dominique and Kim Jackson and the work that God is blessing them with there. Uh, but they're helping them over there. And so we're starting a new class on the week after Sunday, or excuse me, after Resurrection Sunday. And that's going to be the, the theme for the class is going to be kind of more of a directed type of class so everybody will know. We're going to be dealing with breaking chains of bondage, and we're going to start out, I think, talking about uh, financial bondage, and uh, so we'll invite everybody to come uh, be a part of that that would like to, and then we'll go from there into other areas of bondage as God leads, and so come and be praying about that, and anybody that's interested, we'll have a a sign-up sheet starting next week so you can begin to sign up for that, and so we'll know how many to expect, all right? Very good. All the commercials are out of the way. Open your Bibles, if you would, please. Luke chapter 22. I am glad that you've come out this morning. This is, uh, you know, there's nothing worse than having to try to 
to preach to a bunch of empty pews. And so I'm glad that they're not empty this morning. You folks are here, and hopefully some of you will actually smile a time or two through the, uh, the course of the message, uh, so I won't think everybody's mad at me, right? Uh, but even if you are, you know what? We're here for the glory of God. Uh, just kidding. I hope you realize that. Luke chapter 22. We're going to read a, a relatively short passage this morning, beginning there in verse number 39. It is a well-known passage, a passage that is very important uh, to all of us, and especially at the time of the year when we're thinking about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 22, we're going to start reading in verse 39, and I'm going to ask you if you would please to stand with me in reverence to the Word of God as we read. read Luke chapter uh, 22, beginning in verse 39, and the Bible says this, Luke chapter 22, verse 39, uh, and he came out and went as he was wont to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from the prayer... From prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. We'll stop right there for this morning. Let's go to the Lord and ask him to guide us. Father, thank you so much for bringing us out to your house. I thank you for the faithfulness of your people. I thank you for the love that we have one for another and for the encouragement that we draw from one another. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us, that you would give us that which we need for the battle. We know that the devil is at large. He, he's out there today, and he's still seeking whom he may devour. And I pray that we'll not drop our guard, but that we'll be ready, and that you would prepare us for whatever onslaughts may be yet ahead of us today. And, Lord, I pray that as we approach your word, we may do so reverently, understanding that it is, in fact, the word of the living God, and that it is God-breathed, it is given to us by inspiration. I pray that we would take it as such. And, Lord, that we would solemnly apply the principles that we find in it to our own hearts and lives. As always, I want to pray that if there's anybody here this morning that doesn't yet know you, Lord, that you, through your word and by the moving of your spirit, would stir them up, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would convince them of their need of a Savior, and that you would make them so uncomfortable that they'll have to decide to trust you as their Savior. And, Lord, that there'll not be anybody to leave this place that uh, hasn't yet trusted you or followed you. And then, Lord, I pray for your people. You know what we need. I don't. And so I pray that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, we want to exalt you today. I don't want to certainly do this in my own power and strength. And so as your vessel, I pray for a forgiveness of sins, and I pray for a filling of your Holy Spirit, and that your word would not be hindered by the vessel this morning, but rather that your name would be exalted through it all. Pray the same for those that hear in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, folks. You can be seated. We are going to go back to the old-fashioned way this morning. We do not have an overhead, and so hopefully you've got the book with you, and we'll be able to follow along as we go to various passages of Scripture. If not, maybe some of you have it on your phone. Now, by the way, if you're following along in the Bible on your phone, be sure you're watching only the phone and not the sports scores, okay, uh, because those things aren't important right now. The important thing is what God has to say to us. I want to talk to you this morning about the quiet victory of prayer. Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane is known for his simple but oh-so-important surrender to the Father with these words, Not my will, but thine be done. Those words reflect the overall attitude of our Lord. 
during his entire earthly ministry and life. As he faced the dark hours ahead, the humiliation and the agony of the cross, his will was fully surrendered to the Father. I believe that it's significant that our Lord Jesus, before facing such a battle, found it important to spend that last hour or two in prayer. Do you suppose that perhaps the reason we so seldom see a great level of victory in our lives may have something to do with our lack of prayer, or at least with our lack of intensity in prayer? The Scriptures tell us that the effectual fervent prayer of the righteous man availeth much. I wonder, do we really believe that? I wonder, do we demonstrate our belief in that by actually practicing it? I must tell you this morning that I'm convinced that the victory of the cross came about directly because of the earlier victory in the garden. This was not a victory of great fanfare. Literally, no one noticed, not even Jesus' most intimate disciples and friends. It was a quiet victory, but oh, so powerful. Each of the gospel writers except John gives us a detailed account of the quiet battle in Gethsemane. I fear that many of God's people today, perhaps even most, have never seen great and obvious victory in their lives because they've shunned the battleground of Gethsemane. Before the cross was the garden. Before the blood flowed down his back and from his hands and feet, it dropped quietly from his anguished brow in the garden. As we lead up to our final preparations for Resurrection Sunday, I need to talk to you this morning about the quiet victory of prayer. Go back with me in your heart to a small olive grove somewhere on the Mount of Olives, outside the city, the ancient city of Jerusalem. Tomorrow, the Savior will die, but tonight he prays. Even his sleeping disciples are oblivious to the battle that is raging within him. None can come to his aid but his Heavenly Father, and so... He prays. His prayer is, first of all, you will notice in verse number 44, a prayer of agony. Verse 44, the Bible says this. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The prayer of Jesus was a prayer of deep agony of soul and spirit. Many have classified this as Jesus' last temptation. You go to the fourth chapter of the book of Hebrews, the Bible says this, But we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, and yet without sin. I think sometimes in talking about the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and make no mistake, Jesus never ceased to be 100% God. He is all God and very God of very God, as they say. He is God come down from heaven to dwell amongst men. And yet I've told you before that Jesus also, because of his human flesh, laid aside many of the, of the, 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 the authorities, if you will, the glories of his deity without ever ceasing to be God. And the Bible tells us that one of the things that he suffered while he was here on this earth was the agony of temptation. Now listen, for you and I, temptation is kind of a normal everyday experience. In fact, some of us, for many of us, it's not even a battle anymore because we yield before we ever get involved. But for Jesus, this was an agony of soul. This was the God-man, the man-God, facing that which was foreign to him, that was which contrary to his very nature and very being. 
Jesus obviously was tempted by the devil in Matthew chapter 4. And you've seen the three temptations of Christ there in that chapter. But the Bible leads us to understand that there were many temptations through the course of Christ's life. Of course, the difference between him and us is he never yielded to those temptations. He always had his spirit fully submitted to his heavenly Father. And this case is no different. Why did Jesus go to the Garden of Gethsemane but to wage war against the enemy of our souls, the devil himself? And as he prayed, he was in anguish of spirit. He was in agony of soul. Some have said that the devil was trying to keep him from the cross. I can't tell you exactly the content or the whole, the whole frame of context, if you will, of the, of the last prayers of Jesus Christ because the Lord, the Lord tells us here, uh, when he actually, when he rebukes his disciples, uh, he asks them, could you not pray with me one hour? We suppose from that that his prayer was at least an hour in length, and yet we only have a very few words of his prayer. We don't know all that was going on in the spirit of our Lord at that time other than to know that Jesus was beseeching the Father. He was begging the Father as a human being that the cup that he was to face would pass from him. The cause of his struggle and agony was at least twofold. First of all, humanly speaking, Jesus was facing in the next hours a great trial of shame and torture and death. John chapter 12 and verse 27 says this, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause I came I unto this hour. Romans, the 12th chapter in verse 2, a passage that is well known by all of you. The Bible is talking about our Lord Jesus Christ to whom we are to look as we face the trials of our lives. And he says in verse number 2, be not conformed to this world. I'm not looking at the right one. I should go to Hebrews chapter 12. Excuse me. Hebrews chapter 12. I always do that. Do you ever do that? Put down the wrong one, right? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, the Bible says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, listen to this, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God on high. It would never do us well to limit or to minimize the sufferings of the cross. Jesus was, after all, and is all man. The 22nd Psalm, the psalmist there prophetically speaking in lieu of the Savior or of of the sufferings of the Savior tells us this. And you can turn your Bibles there if you would. Psalm 22. I want to read to you verses 11 through 19. This is a very... Uh, a, a very uh, important, poignant psalm uh, for this particular time of, of year, uh, really all the year. But as we talk about uh, uh, the sufferings of our Savior and remember what He's done for us. And in Psalm 22, beginning in verse number 11, have you found it? Psalm 22, verse 11, the Bible says this, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Now let me just pause here and say that I believe that some of the words of this psalm may very well have been what Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane during the time that we don't have accounted for. Verse 12, the Bible says, Many bulls have compassed me, strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They've gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, he says in verse 14. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me unto the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me. 
The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Can you understand that this is talking about Jesus? I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Be not thou far from me, O Lord. O my strength, haste thee to help me. But I'm trying to tell you, folks, is don't think for a moment that the man, Christ Jesus, was any more anxious to go into that kind of suffering than you or I would be. Jesus was fully man, and as such, he understood probably better than you and I can the cruel sufferings that he was to endure in just the next few hours. The trial, or the mockery of a trial, the torturers, procedures of the beatings and the buffetings that he would endure before he was ever condemned, and then ultimately the shameful death of the cross. Humanly speaking, he had great cause for agony of soul because of the pain and the sorrow and the difficulty that was awaiting him physically. But divinely, and I believe this is much more important in this hour, Jesus' agony had to do with the bearing of our sin debt. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 24. This is a well-known passage. Many of you may have memorized it. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24, the Bible says, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live under righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 3 that he hath been made a curse for us, because it's written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. Jesus literally took upon himself our sin. Isaiah chapter 53, as most of you know, is a prophetic prophecy or a prophecy in the Old Testament regarding the sufferings of Messiah, the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in verses 5 and 6 of this particular passage in Isaiah, the Bible says that he was wounded for our transgressions, meaning obviously that it was our fault. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. Verse 6, he says that all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. You ever stop and thought about how stubborn we are as God's creatures? We're going to go our own way. We're going to do what we want to do no matter what God says about it, right? He says we've gone everyone to his own way and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verses 10 and 11 of the same passage says this, Yet it pleased the Lord... To bruise him. Think about that one sometime. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. The travail of his soul is what I'm talking to you about right now, folks. The agony that took place not just at the cross. But before the cross, in the hours previous to his betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his, for by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Over and over again, the Scriptures tell us about the great truth of Scripture, that Jesus Christ is the sin-bearer. The fact that he went to the cross not for his crimes but for mine. He paid the price, not for his own sins, but for yours. When Jesus was tried, he wasn't convicted on his merits or lack of merits, but rather he was convicted because you are a sinner. 
and because I am a sinner. And the Bible tells us that God literally some way miraculously, in a way that only God can, as Jesus was hanging on the cross, he converted, he, he traded places with us so that we who deserve to die were set free. And he who did not deserve to die suffered all the agony and the shame and the condemnation of God, his Father, because of your sin, because of mine. He became our sin bearer. That's what it means in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21 where the Bible says that he hath made him to be sin for us. Who knew no sin? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And in Romans chapter 8 and verse 32, the Bible says that he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? What I'm trying to tell you, folks, is that divinely, that divine part of the nature of Jesus Christ was in agony as he looked forward to the sufferings of the cross. Not, not so much the physical sufferings, because that was the human side, okay? But the, 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 the agony, the suffering of bearing your sin, of becoming like you are and like I am. I, I, I can't think of anything more sobering in my life than to recognize that it was my sin, my meanness, if you will, my stubbornness and rebellion that caused my Savior to die. And is that with which he struggled in the, in the hours just before his trial and execution in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was a prayer of great agony. The intensity of his battle, the Bible tells us, was such that he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. There in verse 44 in our text. I'm not going to try to get into all the medical explanation of all of that because I'm not a doctor, you understand? But the fact of the matter is that this is an agonizing prayer. This is a great level of angst and anxiety, if you will, not in the sense of worrying as we do, but just because of the depth of the spiritual and soul battle that was going on within him. Though Jesus was a man of constant prayer, His need for prayer was great at this moment. How did Jesus fortify himself for the trials of the coming hours? Folks, listen. This is a deep, important message for us. Because you know what we do? We go out into our our daily battle and we think, you know what? I'm pretty good. I can handle this on my own. And we may say as we go out, Lord, help me today as we're kind of walking out the door. But Jesus, knowing what was before him, spent time in prayer these very last moments of his life. Sometimes in our lives it takes some kind of agony or angst to drive us to prayer. God knows what frame we are. He knows that we're but dust. He knows our frailties and he understands that sometimes if things just went well with us all the time, you understand human nature tends to to, to Stray away from God in times of prosperity, in times of tranquility. When everything's going easy, sometimes our attitude is, well, I don't need God right now. I'm handling it pretty well all by myself. Now, you may not say that, but prayerlessness says that. And words that scream from the tops of the mountains. The Bible says in Psalm 130 and verses 1 and 2, Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. Why does God let us go down sometimes? Because it's when we're in the 
whale's belly that we cry out for help, isn't it? It's when we're it's where we're in the depths of the sea that we cry out to the Lord for assistance when we recognize our utter dependence upon Him. And listen, if it was important for the Savior to pray in this hour before His ultimate battle, can it be any less important for us who carry with us the fallen nature of Adam? Certainly it can. What I'm trying to tell you is, listen, if Jesus had to pray, what makes you think you don't? Right? We need the power of prayer, and the victories in our lives can only be attained as we, like Jesus, yield in prayer to the Father. I want to tell you, secondly, that the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was a prayer of surrender. It was a prayer of surrender. Verse 42, going back to our text, the Bible says there, saying, Father... If thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Can I tell you this morning that the purpose of Jesus' prayer was not to discover the will of the Father? He already knew that. He knew it perfectly well. This was the reason why he had come. He knew it from the moment that he came that ultimately there was coming a day that would end on a hill outside of, of, of Jerusalem, a hill that was known in the vernacular as Golgotha, the place of the skull, and that there he would give his life a ransom for many. Jesus knew that. He had a short earthly lifespan, relatively speaking. I look around the room. Now, there are a few exceptions. I look around the room and big majority of the folks in here are well past 33 years old. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to go any further than that, <laughs> okay? Other than just to say, that's not a very long time. Now, when I was 16, I thought it was a long time. But now that I'm not 16 anymore, <laughs> it's, uh, it's not such a long time. Jesus during his entire earthly life, knew and obeyed the will of the Father. He knew step by step how God was leading him. There was no straying. There was no turning aside. There wasn't this daily back and forth that you and I go through. Where one moment we're yielded to the will of God and the next moment we're off on our own tangent again. Jesus walked perfectly in the way of his Father. So what I'm trying to tell you is that Jesus didn't pray in the garden to discover what the will of God was. He already knew it. He also didn't talk to the Father. He didn't pray in order to try to talk the Father out of his will. Now, there are some people that misinterpret the prayer of Christ to make it exactly that. In verse 42, he says, Father, uh, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. And a lot of people say, aha, Jesus is there. He's trying to convince the Father to change his plan. That's not what this is about at all. This is a hypothetical if, okay? This is something that, God, that Jesus Christ knows is not in the will of the Father. And it would be understood by us to say, since it is not your will, I know that it's not your will, then my, thy will be done. Not my will. So he, he knew what the Father's will, and he understood better than you and I do that the Father's will is always best. Listen, do you know why it is that we try to talk God out of his plan? Now, I'm going to stop preaching and start walking on your toes for just a minute, if you'll pardon me, okay? Why do we try to talk God out of his plan? Because we think we know better than he does. 
right? It's like, Lord, that doesn't fit with all, within my plans at all. I, I had this thing mapped out differently, and I think this is what I want. And, and I can almost see God sometimes in heaven shrugging his shoulders and saying, what am I going to do with this kid? You know? Have you been around from eternity? That's what he did with Job. I love to read the last few chapters of the book of Job as, as basically God tells Job how the cow ate the cabbage. It says, listen, you weren't here in the beginning when I laid the foundation of the world. Who are you to darken counsel with words without knowledge? Who are you to tell God what ought to be done? Listen, folks, we may be living in the 21st century, but we're not a whole lot smarter than Job was. And amazingly, too many of us today try to pray in order to talk the Father out of His will or in order to convince Him that our plan is better. Lord, listen, our prayer too many times goes like this. Father, this is what I've got planned today. Here's my list. Here's my schedule. Will you bless it? Now, let me ask you something. Why should He? Did you forget who's God? Did you consult Him while making the schedule? What I'm trying to say is it is his will that we are to seek, not our own. Look, if you would, please, in John chapter 12. I love this. This is Now, those of you that have been on our Sunday evening Bible studies, going through the book of John, we've already looked at this, and hopefully it was a challenge to you and a blessing to you. But look at what Jesus said in John 12, chapter 12, verse 27. We already read 27 once. He says this, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. And then he continues, and he says, Rather, Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The fourth chapter of the book of John, verse 34, Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. In John chapter 5, and verse 30, I can, do, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. John 6, 38, for I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Are you getting the idea? The whole theme of Jesus' life was not my will, but thine be done. And now he's coming to the greatest battle of his life. This is the moment that's going to determine, determine not only his own destiny, but Yours and mine as well. The final hours before his ultimate betrayal. Now, by the way, right up until this point and even to the cross, Jesus could have at any moment, and he tells us so, called out and God would have sent 12 legions of angels to deliver him. But he knew that that was not the plan of God. What I'm trying to tell you is that Jesus was not praying to talk the Father out of his will. He knew that our salvation was dependent upon that will. He knew that God's will, the Father's will, is always best. And so I submit to you this morning that rather the prayer of Jesus was to confirm the surrender of his will to the Father. It wasn't for the first time to surrender his will to the Father. We've already seen that all through his life his will was surrendered, right? But rather, this is just a final confirmation. Lord, God, Father, you are in control, not I. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 7, we read that passage a moment ago, but verse 8, the Bible tells us there that though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things 
which he suffered. Now, I'm going to look at the other verses in just a moment. But uh, though he were a son, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. That's a, that's a concept that we struggle with sometimes. Understanding that Jesus lived his earthly life as a man fully surrendered to the will of God. Yes, he is God come in the flesh, but he's also a man fully surrendered. And so he prayed not to, not to try to talk God out of his will, but rather to conform his will or to confirm uh, his surrender to the will of God. Now, how does this fit us? I've got to tell you that in our case, we pray in order to bring our will into conformity with the Father's. I believe one of the reasons that we are not effective in our prayer so many times is because we're praying for the wrong reasons. We're either asking for God's stamp of approval on what we've already determined, as we've already talked about. We're asking for the Lord to bless that which he did not institute, that which he didn't initiate. We're saying, God, bless this because I'm doing it. And sometimes God will do that, but most of the time he won't. Okay? Uh, but we're not effective in our prayer because we haven't yet realized that the primary purpose, I believe, that for prayer for the saint is to submit our spirits to that of the Father, to submit our spirits to the Spirit of God, and to bring our wills into conformity with His. So that God can do the work in us to change our way of thinking and we can understand that he's always right. And so we pray. We get hard-headed and stiff-necked when we go without our prayer because we think then that we can figure things out on our own. Often the greatest hindrance to determining God's leadership. Have you ever wondered, Lord, if I just knew what your will is, I'd do it. Right? You ever prayed that way? If you haven't, you haven't been down some of the roads I've been down, okay? There are so many times in our life when we just, and I've talked to young people particularly, they're coming up on the time in their life when they're making their, their life's decisions, their life's choices, which is the route I'm going to follow for the rest of my life. And, and they're saying, Pastor, pray with me that I will be able to determine God's will. And they want, to, they want some kind of a secret code to figure it out, right? Go to this passage, go to this passage, put the two together, uh, twist the words around upside down and backwards, and God will reveal it to you in neon letters. This is God's will for your life. Can I tell you, it doesn't happen that way. We determine God's will in our lives by daily submission to that will through our daily exercise of prayer. And many times the greatest hindrance to determining God's leadership and will is that our own desires get in the way. We're so full of what we want to do that we can't hear what God wants us to do. We've got our, pl- our lives all mapped out. You know what the problem with that is? You don't know what tomorrow will bring. As we know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then pff, vanishes away. Right? That was added for your effect, okay? <laughs> the understanding is that we can't determine God's will because our own stubborn will gets in the way. What I'm trying to tell you, folks, is that God blesses surrender, not commitment. Now, let me try to explain to you if I can, and this is difficult, because this has become the, the terminology that we use today. The story is told of a foreign pastor who visited this country for a second time after many years. He had come once early on in his life, and then he came back after many years. And when he was asked if he saw any difference in American Christianity, his reply was that American Christians seemed to be much more apathetic than they once were. And so he was asked, what do you think was the reason for that? 
He pondered it for a while, and finally he answered that he suspected that it was connected to a change of wording. Well, they were obviously very puzzled about that. But it seemed, he said, it seems that preachers talk a lot today about commitment. That's not the word they used to use. So they asked him, what was the word they used to use? And his answer was very simple. The word was surrender. You understand the difference, folks? You see, with commitment, I'm in control. I call the shots. I decide how far I'm going to go, where to draw the line. With surrender, it's all turned over to him. He leads. He decides. He governs. He controls. The admonition of Scripture is to surrender or to yield. Romans chapter 6 and verse 13, the Bible says this, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God, as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Romans 6 and verse 16 says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. I wonder how many of us have hindered our prayers because of our unwillingness to surrender absolutely and unconditionally to God. You take over. This, I believe, is what Jesus was doing in the garden. Father, you know what the human side of my nature would desire at this moment. But this moment is not about my will, but rather yours. And so in full surrender, knowing what it entailed, Jesus said, I'm ready. Here I am. I want to finally close out this morning by telling you that the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was a prayer that was heard by God. Verse 43, the Bible again says, And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. Luke's the only one that tells us about the angel. But the angel came and ministered to Jesus. Go with me back, if you would, please, again to a passage that we read a portion of just a moment ago in the fifth chapter of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. The Bible says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death. Now, by the way, if you wonder what Jesus was praying about, Hebrews 5 tells us. And was heard, listen to this, was heard in that he feared. Though he were son, yet he learned, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obeyed him, or that obey him. Psalm 22 and verse 24 says, For he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither hath he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard. Now listen, I know that it's kind of a, an exercise of futility to or to, to to think for a moment that any of the prayers of Jesus were not heard by the Father when he was here on this earth. But can I tell you a secret? It's equally fruitless and futile to imagine that your prayers are not heard because you have the same authority to pray that Jesus did. Because you too are a son of God if you've accepted Christ as your Savior. Because you're one in him, because you're placed in Jesus Christ, you have access to the throne of God, the very same access that Jesus, the man, had when he was here on this earth. 
Now, folks, we don't have time to develop that full thought through the book of Hebrews, but let me just tell you that we have access into the Holy of Holies. There's nothing that Jesus could pray for that you and I can't pray for. And that's why we pray in the name, by the authority and the power of Jesus, our Savior. The verse that's translated fear in Hebrews chapter 5 is actually a word that refers strictly to godly fear, never to anything else. He wasn't terrorized by what he foresaw. Rather, he lived in godly reverence and fear, piety, if you will. It wasn't a fear of man, but a deep submission to God. Proverbs 29, verse 25 says that the fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be saved. First chapter of Proverbs says in verse 7 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And in the 12th chapter of the book of Hebrews, the Bible says, Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Why was Jesus' prayer heard? Because Jesus, above all men, was godly. He lived in reverent fear of his Father, not in terror, but in respect and awe. Understanding what we so seldom understand. And God answered his prayer. i got to close with this. This is key. Hang on to this. Are you ready? God answered his prayer, not by deliverance, but by strength. He did not deliver him from the hour. He gave him the grace to go through it. Hebrews 1 and verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to them or for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Somebody said, nah, you know what? I've never seen an angel. An angel. But can I tell you, if you're a child of God and you're going through trials and tribulations and difficulties and if you're praying, there are angels there. They're ministering to you, just they ministered to the Savior. Psalm 103, verse 20, the Bible says, Bless the Lord, ye his angels, that excel in strength, that do his commandments, hearkening to the voice of the Lord. Bless ye the Lord, all ye his hosts, you ministers of his, that do his pleasure. God does not always deliver his children from the battle. He often strengthens them for the battle and delivers, delivers them by victory through it. Such was the case with our Savior. Listen, folks. The last hour or two of Jesus' earthly life before his trial, Jesus spent in prayer. And by that prayer, he won a quiet victory. One that's often forgotten, but one that it would do us well to remember. I've got to ask you this morning. Have you received the freedom from sin? That peace that passes understanding that comes only from knowing Jesus Christ. Well, it comes from knowing that your sins were placed upon him on that cross. Have you trusted him? Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? If not, I'm going to invite you to come in just a moment when we begin to sing. Let us show you in the Bible how you can become a child of God. But listen, the message this morning has been addressed primarily to those of us who belong to him. My challenge to you this morning is if Jesus had to pray, what makes you think you don't? Can't we pray the same kind of prayer that Jesus did? Can't we yield ourselves to him and allow God to be God in our lives and let him work through us to bring us through the victories of the battle that we may face tomorrow or in the days to come? Folks, listen. Jesus prayed. 
I love the fact that he prayed for you. We'll talk about that another time. But right now, the victory came not by deliverance from the trial, but by victory through it. Will you stand with me, please, with your heads bowed? Father, thank you for what you've done in us today. Thank you for the power of your word. Lord, it's so exciting for us to realize that Jesus prayed. That he needed your presence just as we need your presence. And certainly we're presumptuous when we think that we're better than he. Lord, I pray that you would teach us, your people, to pray as he prayed. Forgive us for our prayerlessness. I pray that we'll get that right with you even this morning in our invitation time. I want to pray for that one or two who may be here this morning, maybe more, that don't yet know you as Savior. They've never prayed because they don't know how. They've never trusted in that sacrifice for their sin that you gave there on the cross. And so, Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. May we see souls saved this morning. In Jesus' name. Three hundred and forty-two, just as I am.